Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients, we have partners. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another empowering episode of From Vision to Creation. Today, we have the distinct honor of featuring a trailblazer, a visionary leader, and a true inspiration, Texas State Senator, Dr. Judith Zaffarini. Elected in 1986, she emerged as one of the first women in the Texas Senate, breaking barriers and paving the way for future generations. Representing the 21st Senatorial District, stretching from the Rio Grande to the Colorado River and the Valley, she has become a powerhouse, securing an impressive 11th landslide victory in 2022. Notably, Senator Zaffarini is the first Hispanic woman ever elected to the Texas Senate, a testament to her resilience and a commitment to making a lasting impact. After beginning her Senate tenure ranked 30th of 31, at the end of 2023, she became the first woman dean of the Texas Senate, a title awarded to the highest ranking member. Senator Zaffarini's legendary work is reflected in her impressive record, a 100% voting record with 72,132 consecutive votes in the Texas Senate since 1987. Her bipartisan effectiveness is underscored by passing an astounding 1,388 bills, more than any legislator in the state's history, including 122 bills in 2023, more than any other legislator for the fifth consecutive time in the Republican-dominated Texas legislature. Honored with more than 1,200 awards and honors for her legislative, public service, and professional work, Senator Judith Zaffarini stands as a true champion. Her commitment to transparency, justice, and advocacy for diverse communities has left an indelible mark on the Lone Star State. Join us in this inspiring conversation as we delve into the life, achievements, and enduring legacy of Dean Judith Zaffarini, a true embodiment of vision, resilience, and creation. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm beyond honored. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, So the first thing I just want us to dive into is, can you talk us through the early stages of your decision to run for the Texas Senate and kind of talk about what inspired you to run? Well, in 1982, there were so many of us who were working so hard regarding different issues. My priority always included higher education. And at the time, Laredo, Texas was the only city in Texas that did not have a four-year university. I should say the only city of that size or bigger that did not have a four-year university. So my priority issue was to get a four-year university for Laredo. And we were testing the waters and organizing and talking about how we would raise money, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, something better came along. 
and a friend of mine called and said, there's a rumor that you're dropping out of the Texas Senate race. And I said, it's not a rumor, it's true. And he said, why? I said, something much better came along. And he said, what could be better than running for the Texas Senate? And I said, I'm pregnant. Wow. And this is after having lost four babies. I had had four miscarriages between the third and the seventh years we were married. And the 16th year we were married, we actually thought I had cancer. And I went for a checkup, and I didn't have cancer. I was fine. And time passed, and we found out that I was pregnant. Well, I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. And I remember calling my sister and said, are you sitting down? And she said, yes. And I said, you are sitting down. And she said, yes. I said, what is the last thing you expect me to tell you? And she paused, and then she said, Reagan appointed you to something. <laughs> I said, no, I'm pregnant. And she started crying. I was crying. And she said, have you told mother? I said, no, you call her. And she said, no, you call her. And she said, you're the pregnant one. And I said, but I'm crying. I can't talk. <laughs> I was so thrilled. All over town, people cried with joy because I had had those four miscarriages. And certainly that was a lot better than running for the Texas Senate. So I withdrew and my child was born perfectly healthy. And then I thought that something shook loose and that I was going to have three, four, or five children. And I was thrilled about that, but it didn't happen. So four years later, in 1986, the subject came up again. And there were other people, friends of mine, who were considering running for the Texas Senate. And the reason was that we had a senator from the northern part of the district. Senate District 21, at the time, comprised 20 counties. It went from the border north to San Antonio, and to uh, Seguin and Floresville in that area, and then it went to the valley. So it was a very large district, not as large in population as it is today. Today we have 16 counties and a much bigger population, but we really wanted that four-year university for Laredo, so that was the primary issue that caused me to run, to get a four-year university for Laredo. And the senator from Floresville spent a lot of time in San Antonio, but not a lot of time in the district. So I did my research, and we hired some researchers to really look into the possibility of my running, and we found out that he had a very low ID in the district, but he was very powerful, very strong, very popular in Austin mm. and in San Antonio. So I knew that I had my work cut out for me, and nobody wanted to run against him. So I decided to do it with that primary issue in mind, and I set my criteria for running, and the criteria included having a organizational committee in every one of the 20 counties, having 100% of the people who were on my list of names of the key organizers, 100% commit to me. If one said no, then I would not run because that's what I needed to win, and I knew it. And then third was to have $100,000 in the bank and $250,000 in pledges. Those were my criteria. So I started looking around, we started traveling, started testing the waters again. Then we dealt with a hostage situation, and my campaign treasurer was taken hostage when the airplane was hijacked. And it was just an unbelievably horrific experience, and I dropped everything, so did my husband, he dropped his practice of law. We devoted ourselves completely to helping to get those hostages back, including my campaign manager and his family. So then again, I dropped out. The same friend called me and said, I heard you're dropping out of the race. I said, it's too late. It's already July, and the primary is in May. I said, it's too late to get organized for a 20-county race. He said, it is not too late. He said, what are you talking about? We're organized. Because, you see, we had been going to the Democratic County Conventions and the Democratic State Conventions, some of us also to the National Conventions since the 70s. 
And he said, we have people in every county. And I said, you're right, let me start over. So after the hostages came back on the 4th of July, I started again. And I did not meet my criteria until December. And I announced on December 18th. And I announced then the same issues that are my priorities today. If you look at my campaign literature today, you will see the same priorities. And those are education in general, with a focus on early childhood and higher education. Health and human services, with a focus on the very young, the very old, the very poor, persons with disabilities, and later I added veterans. And those were my priorities then, and they're my priorities now. But that's what I ran to address, a four-year university for Laredo and those particular issues. Simultaneously, I went to the senator who was known in all the counties, who would travel to the counties, and who would welcome constituents to the office, to the Capitol, or to the district office. So I wanted a better communication system, more interaction, more collaboration, more opportunities to work together to pass legislation. And in that respect, I have succeeded. Now I have to tell you that people laughed when I announced I was running. They just laughed that a Mexican-American woman from the border, from Laredo, would even think of running for the Texas Senate. And at the time, you see, we had only one woman in the Senate. Mm. Only one, and only six. Six women in the history of the state of Texas had served in the Texas Senate, including that one. So I would be number seven, and actually I became number eight because two of us were elected that year. We were number seven and eight elected at the same time, Eddie Bernice Johnson from Dallas and I, and then we drew to see who would have seniority. She drew seven, <laughs> so I was number eight. But I would say, Los compadres necesitan una comadre. You know, the Hispanic men needed an Hispanic woman in the Senate. <laughs> there were five, I believe, five Hispanic men at the time, but no women. No Hispanic woman had ever served. And while I'm known as a Mexican-American woman and the first Mexican-American woman ever elected to the Texas Senate, I'm actually of Mexican, Spanish, Sephardic Jew, and Greek descent. So it's quite a mix, you see. But what happened is I started running against the incumbent, John Traeger of Seguin. As I said, very powerful, very popular, very well-financed man, very well-financed. And I had nothing. I was starting from scratch. But I had a lot of friends, and I had a lot of organizational skills. I had a lot of support. I had a lot of people who cared, not so much about me, but about us, about mm. the issues that we all cared about, about the families we hoped to serve about the interaction that we craved, about our local issues being addressed. So nobody had ever run against Traeger. No serious candidate would run against Traeger because he was so powerful. When he saw that I was serious about running and when I did not back off after several attempts to intimidate me from running, then he ran a poll and he saw that I would beat him. Mm -hmm. Then he ran another poll to see if he could beat me if he changed parties and ran against me as a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Mm. And he saw that best case scenario for him, worst case scenario for me, I would still beat him by three points. And you see, 10 of our counties were Republican and 10 of our counties were Democratic. So it was a swing district, mm. very swing district. So he was shocked. He was absolutely shocked. Well, when he withdrew, then all of a sudden, four men got into the race. Mm. Three state representatives and then an attorney from uh, San Antonio. So all of a sudden, we had all these people in the race because they were afraid of him, 
but they were not afraid of me. I see. And so suddenly I had the slew of candidates, and at a time when women were not known to run good campaigns, when women did not have the experience in campaigns to raise the money to get organized and to win, especially at this level. And people laughed at me. They laughed. They didn't take me seriously. And everything that was positive about my resume was turned into a negative. For example, I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham Horns. <laughs> that, in their minds, turned into, she's a hippie. Mm. She's a hippie from UT. And they would say things like, and who do you know who went to UT in the 60s and didn't do drugs? I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, much less used drugs, but that didn't matter. The truth didn't matter, you see. And so all my positives became negatives. And Laredo itself became a negative in the North. They would say, you don't want a senator from Laredo. You don't want a woman from, to be your senator. And so everything that was positive became a negative. And it was very, very difficult. But I ran strong with a lot of support from my family and friends with not enough money. I was outspent two to one in the primary and then outspent two to one in the runoff that I eventually entered with Billy Hall from my hometown Laredo. And so outspent two to one in the primary and runoff and then outspent two to one in the general. But I was elected because of my friends and my family who worked so hard. Again, not for me, it wasn't personal, it was for us. It mm -hmm. was for our families. And part of the situation was so difficult, so difficult because of the hostility, because of the tension, because of the attacks, that frankly, I had to develop a sense of humor to get me through it. I'll give you an example. I went to a county in the southern part of the district, and this very elderly man looked at me, and all this happened in Spanish, but for, the, for your <laughs> listeners, I will say it in English. And he said, you are running for the Texas Senate? And I said, yes, sir, why not? And he said, well, everybody knows that women should stay home to clean house. Oh, my goodness. I said, yes, sir, that's exactly what I'm doing. I dusted off in May, swept up in June, and I'm going to mop up in November. <laughs> I love it. And that man became one of my strongest supporters. And a few years later, he was the county coordinator for Ann Richards when she was elected governor of Texas. So you see, minds were changed. Mm. There was a, another man in the northern part of the district, a very good-looking, strong, tall cowboy, typical Texas cowboy. And he said, little lady, I like what you're saying, but I've never voted for a lady in my life. And I said, sir, just hold your nose and do it. <laughs> and he did. And you see, it was that sense of humor that helped get me through, and very hard work. And that is when my education also helped me because I didn't hire a speechwriter. I didn't hire someone to write my press releases. And I was very involved with my ads. And a former student of mine from Laredo Junior College actually developed my ads. So it was really, you know, a mom and pop show. It was a mom and pop operation. And I remember the governor of Texas's staff member called and said, you're being laughed at in Austin. This was before the general election when I was running against a Republican. I said, why? Why are they laughing? He said, they're saying that you're running a mom and pop operation. I said, I am. I said, and that's what's going to get me elected. But you see, what people today don't understand is how unlikely it was for a woman to run at the time, especially someone from the border, someone of Mexican descent. It was very unusual. And I remember my 
the incumbent said, we'll beat her like a drum in the north. They didn't say I have a prayer. They did not think I have a prayer. And with all the attacks and the hostility and the insults, I remember vividly going before the San Antonio Express News Board, the editorial board, and we sat there for an hour and they asked me questions. And then after all the questions and answer session, after that session was over, the publisher turned to me and said, I've been sitting here very quietly, haven't said a word, listening to you. And he said, I like everything you say. They had asked me about tort reform, income tax, abortion, everything you can think of, all the issues of the day. And he said, well, why is it that every time that your name comes up in a, a meeting of business executives, everybody says that you're a radical and a bomb thrower? And I didn't bat an eyelash. I said, because they either don't know me or they're lying. And he loved it, and they endorsed me. <laughs> the San Antonio Express News endorsed me. He said that that answer and the fact that I didn't hesitate helped me so much. And you know, Senator, I didn't realize that you had those challenges when you were running for the Texas Senate. But in addition to that, I mean, to say that you have accomplished a lot in your time as senator would be a massive understatement. In fact, I read that in, as in 2023, you were the highest bill passer for the fifth consecutive session, passing 122 bills, bringing your career total to 1,388 bills passed and that you've passed more bills than any other legislator in the history of the United States. What is the motivating force behind your work ethic and dedication and that helped get you through those times that were difficult at the beginning? The knowledge that I have the power, as every senator does, to change lives. I have the power to make a difference for the families I represent. Again, it's not about me, it's about us. Every member of the Texas Senate can make a difference. I remember significantly that one time a lieutenant governor who was single at the time turned to me in the presence of his date and said, would you please tell Julie what is the most important thing we do in the Texas Senate? And I, again, I didn't bat an eyelash. I said, we decide who lives and who dies. Wow. And he was stunned and that just came. It just came, you know, it wasn't anything planned or that I had ever said before. I said, that is the most important thing to do. When we fund AIDS medication, when we fund immunization, when we fund anti-child abuse programs, we are deciding who will live and who will die. When we fund education and ensure that we have excellence in education for the engineers who will design and help build our bridges and our buildings, for doctors who will operate, for judges who will preside in life or death matters, we are funding programs that will ultimately impact who will live and who will die. And that is what motivates me, making a difference for the families of our district, making a difference for the families of our state, and recognizing the power of a Texas Senate, the power to do good, to improve people's lives, to make a difference. And what advice would you give to someone who is interested in getting involved in public service and who feels the callings that you felt? The most important thing for anyone who's interested in public service is to prepare, to prepare thoroughly and to understand the issues, understand the priorities, and understand what people need. Sometimes people run for office because they want a title, they want a position, they want an experience. That's not good enough. Mm -hmm. That's no reason to run. It's not what you want to do, it's what you can do for others. And that is the key to success in public service, to have the ability to make a difference for others. And in order to do that, number one, 
A person has to understand the issues. Number two, has to be able to articulate them. Number three, has to be able to run a campaign and raise the money for a winning campaign. And I do not believe that people should run for office unless they are thoroughly prepared, they are the best qualified for the job, and they have the ability, the organizational skills, and the funds and the support to win. Mm. And when you were running for the Texas Senate, I know you said that your friends and family were majorly supportive. And beyond friends and family, did you have any other mentors or role models who influenced your mindset and helped you on your path? Never. Never had a role model. But understand, you at your age have role models. I'm 77 years old. When your grandmother and I grew up in Laredo, Texas, we didn't have professional women, political women to look to. There were very, very few women. There was a woman doctor, a woman doctor, I recall. There was a woman attorney. So the working women that we knew were doing very good work, very important. They had very important jobs. They were teachers, they were secretaries, but they weren't political at the level at which I became involved. And as I said, people laughed when I ran because it was so unusual for a woman to run for office and especially, you know, to be expected to win. It just was highly unusual. And so there were no role models out there for me. I did not even think of going to college until I was a high school senior because women were not expected to go to college. My mother was a secretary, my father was a railroad clerk, and they did not, they had four daughters. They wanted us to do what we wanted to do. It did not matter to them, it was not important to them if we went to college or not. If we wanted to go, they'd support it. If we didn't want to go, that was fine with them. If we wanted to get a job, that was fine with them. My mother's goals for her four daughters were number one, that we would be well-mannered. Number two, that we would be bilingual, that we could speak English y siempre hablar español <laughs> because we lived in Laredo and that we would live well, that we would marry well and that we would learn to type in case we married well but our husbands got sick or died or we didn't get married and then we could work as secretaries as she did. So I learned to type and I typed very, very fast and very, very well and I compose at the computer now and I married very well. I have a wonderful husband. We've been married 58 years and I'm well-mannered and bilingual. So I met my mother's expectations but she was not a role model for me in that sense because she did not have high expectations. That does not reflect negatively on her. That was a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. The low expectations, I would even say lack of expectations for women at that time. And it was very difficult. And my four sisters, two of us went on to college, and the difference was that those two of us had boyfriends who encouraged us to run, and both of their mothers were unusual in that they were college graduates and teachers. And so our boyfriends influenced us positively. This is actually really blowing me away because you were just driven by the causes that you felt passionate about. And that's what really got you to make this happen. Well, I was driven by those causes then, and I'm driven by those causes today. Somewhat different causes, but always going back to those root issues, education and health and human services. That's what I cared about then. It's what I care about now. But again, it's always the interest in making a difference and not being self-centered. Mm -hmm. And when people ask me all the time, aren't you proud to be the first Mexican-American woman in the Texas Senate? I always answer, proud? I'm disgusted. What took so long? Wow. Why did it take so long? And why did it take 13 years to elect another one? And I believe it was something like 12 or 14 years to elect a third. 
Today we finally have two women. But it was so unusual to run, and we need more women to be prepared to run for office, to devote themselves to public service, to develop the skills and the ability that they need in order to run and to win. In the entire history of the state of Texas, 88 legislative sessions, more than 900 men have served. You know how many women have served? 24. Wow. Eight of whom are serving today. A third of the women who have served in the Senate in the history of the state of Texas are serving today. And so you see, that drives me. That drives me to make a difference. So getting here was important. Being the first Mexican-American woman in the Texas Senate was important, but doing the work is more. And when you get elected, when you reach a position like this, the next question is, now what? <laughs> getting there is the easy part. As difficult as it was to get elected, the most challenging part was to make a difference and then to deal with the chauvinism of the time. The chauvinism of the time was incredible. My first session, the number one priority issue at the, uh, debated was a low-level radioactive waste disposal site and where it would be. And I prevailed in that debate and passed my legislation against the third highest ranking senator when I was the lowest ranking. I was number 30 out of 31 because of the luck of the draw. If not, I could have been 31 because we draw for seniority, you see. And so I won that debate 28 to two and passed my legislation, which had been in competition to his and other bills by the most senior senators, the highest ranking and the second and third highest ranking senators. And I came in as number 30 in seniority out of 31 and passed my bill during a special session. And he came up to me afterward and he said, well, congratulations. And I said, thank you. He said, you have to understand what that means coming from me. Because, he said, I am 53 years old, and for me, the only purpose for women is to entertain men between wars. And I said, at an earlier age, I would have slapped him. Mm -hmm. At that age, I thought, 28 to 2, who cares what he thinks? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you see, sense of humor is yes. important. And too many people who run for office focus on themselves, on their own needs, on their own wants, take everything personally, don't take everything seriously and can't cope adequately. So having a sense of humor is critical to being effective in public service. And in addition to your work as a public servant, you also own Zaffarini Communications. What legacy do you aspire to leave through your work as both an educator and Texas senator? Well, I'm not so interested in leaving a legacy. I'm more interested in doing the work and let the chips fall where they may. Mm. But the work that I love is making a difference in the Texas Senate and making a difference through my business, Safirini Communications, because it is my wish to empower people to do a better job, to empower people to communicate more effectively. And so I share with them the power tools of communication, mm. uh, critical thinking skills, and the way of developing critical thinking skills, how to develop memorable speeches, how to organize a speech, how to improve customer service, many, many topics that I offer through my seminars and workshops, and including writing booklets, writing booklets and handbooks. For example, I wrote the protocol handbook for the city of Laredo, simply to empower the local officials to do a better job in the area of public service. And you're known for your motivating no-note speeches, which I think is so cool. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any techniques you use when speaking publicly? Absolutely, absolutely. I have a framework. And that's one of the things that I share through my workshops, and it's a framework I developed. If I'm writing a speech, for example, I start with the body of the speech. 
I organized the speech into three parts, introduction, body, and conclusion. Then I start with a body, and I identify and develop five major points. Not three, not four, not six, five, always five. And depending on the length of the speech, I divide them to a different length. For example, either if it's a two-minute speech, I'm not going to divide them at all. I'm going to articulate five major points. If it's a shorter speech, I'll de develop them and divide them into A and B. If it's a longer speech, A, B, and C. Mm. But every major point is developed to the same um, length of time. A, either no divisions, or A and B, or A, B, and C, etc. And so then I develop a memory tool. For example, if I were to speak to you about the literary giants to quote in your speeches, listen to this, let's see if you can figure out my memory tool, I would focus on Tennyson, Emerson, Angelou, Churchill, and Henley. The teach. first letter, teach. Teach. <laughs> you Love see? that. And so that's how I remember, teach. So I give myself a memory tool. I don't need the notes. And then because I wrote the speech, I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I don't try to memorize the speech word for word. I memorize the memory tool and know the content well enough to remember it and to speak without notes. Then I go back to the introduction. Once the body of the speech is developed, I write the introduction, which always starts with a thank you. Thank you somebody for something. Then an attention getter, something that is relevant to the occasion and to the subject and that will get the attention of the people and interest in, in what I'm going to say. And then a preview, an anticipatory set of what I'm going to say and then a transition into the body. Then I write the conclusion, which is the mirror image of the introduction. It starts out with a transition from the body, and then a summary of the main points, then a climax, and then a thank you. Mm. And that's my framework. And I use it every single time, every single time. That's, and it works. That's genius. I'm going to mm -hmm. use that. And Senator, if you could go back in time and offer your younger self one piece of advice before starting your career tailored specifically to you, what would it be? Learn more about more issues. Develop greater interest. And don't be afraid to try where you will fail. Mm. Because most of us play to our strengths. And we need to reach out beyond our comfort zone. And I wish I had done that earlier. I do it now, and I have been doing it for some time, but I wish I had started earlier. For example, my weakness was math, so I'm weak to this day in math because I shied away from it college. I should have just tackled that, mm. you see. I was terrified of computers, but now you see my setup here. <laughs> it's quite sophisticated. Computers. Yes, I have quite a sophisticated system. And I have this identical system at my home offices in Laredo in Austin because I was forced you do, to come forth and to master technology. But I didn't hide from it. I mastered it. Mm -hmm. I wish I had mastered math. But the more we know about more subjects, the more abilities we have, the more skills we develop, the more empowered we are to do a better job for people. Beautiful. That's beautifully mm -hmm. said. Well, and th Senator, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. This was absolutely wonderful, and I really appreciate you coming on. Well, you're welcome. I'm delighted to be with you today, and I wish you well, and I hope that your listeners enjoyed our conversation. As we conclude this episode of From Vision to Creation, it is impossible not to be deeply moved by the indomitable spirit and exceptional accomplishments of Senator Dr. Judith Zaffarini, Dean of the Texas Senate. 
Her journey, marked by groundbreaking achievements, unwavering dedication, and a commitment to public service, stands as a beacon of inspiration for us all. Senator Zaffarini's historic role as the first Hispanic woman elected to the Texas Senate is a testament to her resilience and trailblazing spirit. Representing the 21st Senatorial District with grace and distinction, she has not only shattered glass ceilings, but also become a powerful force for positive change. What truly stands out is Senator Zaffarini's unparalleled work ethic, reflected in her 100% voting record, 72,132 consecutive votes since 1987, a remarkable feat that emphasizes her commitment to representing the voice of the people. Senator Zaffarini's accolades and honors, totaling more than 1,200, showcase the profound impact she has had in various spheres of public, professional, and civic life. From being inducted into the Texas Women's Hall of Fame, to receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from LULAC Council 12, her legacy is woven into the fabric of Texas history. Her dedication to education, healthcare, and justice has left an enduring mark on Texas, exemplifying the values of transparency, leadership, and compassion. As we bid farewell to this episode, let us carry forward the spirit of the first woman Dean of the Texas Senate, Senator Dr. Judith Zaffarini, a leader, a trailblazer, and a true champion for the people. May her story continue to inspire generations to come, proving that vision, resilience, and creation can pave the way for transformative change.